Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures on the history of yoga. Let's continue with the next lecture. Yoga, joining, linking, pulling back on the reins, a very pronounced activity. An activity undertaken by warriors building their lives on this metaphor of the chariot. And the greatest warrior tales include stories about the performance of yoga. Probably sometime around 1000 or 900 BC, we don't know for certain, but there was probably a great war. And during that great war, these different communities, competing kingdoms in northern India, fell into conflict with one another. And this war was of such dramatic proportions that the story continued to be told. Bards would visit different parts of India and tell this narrative about two sets of cousins who had fallen into conflict, who had formed alliances, and in the midst of this grand narrative, we find yoga. A yoga, very old yoga, that perhaps finds in this early telling gives us clues about how that metaphor of the chariot became a metaphor for inner control. And there's a great sage, an elder called Bhishma, who has been felled by arrows in the midst of this battle, but does not die. And he's propped up by these arrows that pierce his body. And after this horrible war ends, one of the great figures called Yudhishthira goes to this great sage called Bhishma and learns so many aspects of history and philosophy, including instruction in a book called the Moksha Dharma Parvan, including instruction about key points to keep in mind when striving to gain and to hold on to that place of connection. And a message comes in many forms in this, this very, very early record of the performance of yoga. The message comes that the great enemies of yoga are lust, anger, greed, and fear. Lust, it brings people out into all sorts of behavior and often misbehavior. Anger, at the root, 
of every act of violence, whether thought, word, or deed. Greed, clutching and grabbing and wanting more and more and more, and when really absorbed in greed, we lose our ability to hold the reins. And fear, fear, wanting things to be other than they are, and even through the mind, creating things that need not be created. Fear, fear. Okay, all of those must be recognized, must be faced. And they must be faced not only in the realm of the rational, but part of the world of yoga includes careful and constant attention to dream and sleep. In our dream, we can learn about unresolved fear. We can learn about anger and lust. We can learn about greed that we may not even know, but our dreams can remind us and instruct us. Sleep, if it's fitful sleep, perhaps we know that we're not in a place of yoga, Sleep in the form of a blessed nap can bring us to places of great restoration. Nidra yoga, signaled as early perhaps as 2,500 years ago. We know also from the Mahabharata that yoga can bring us power, that through learning how to restrain the senses, to hold back on those reins, to move into that place of dominion over our thoughts and over our outflows and over our encounters and activities, that we can gain a power of self-knowledge and a power that commands respect from others. And we know that through yoga, we can harness those forces that will bring us into states of samadhi, into states of a sustained vision, whereby we can feel the gift of bliss, that we can feel the gift of not having to compulsively act based on the narrative that has been, but we're able to create a vision for a life grounded in a place of steadfastness, in a place of bliss. The tools are vitarka, which is knowing how our thoughts work, vichara, which is being able to create a sustained theme of concentrated, energetic purpose, and viveka, viveka, discernment. Will this bring me to a place of, of, of connection or will this bring me to a place of dissipation? And with that viveka, one can recognize and anticipate difficulty and steer around that difficulty or if it insists on being recognized, that one can dispassionately engage that difficulty, both on the conscious 
side of the equation and through dream, the unconscious side of the equation, and bring it into a place of stability, into a place of knowledge, of jnana, of dipti, of light, the light specifically of yoga. It says in this early iteration of yoga that yoga is the faultless jewel, that it gathers all of the rays of experience into that place of stability, of concentration, of dharana, and allows us to be in connection with that inner self. What is called the adhyatma, atma, the self, adhyatma, that place of reflection, that gateway into the true self, into that place of purusha. Yudhishthira, one of the heroes of the Mahabharata, needs to be reminded of this yoga because as king, and after the war, he assumes the throne. As king, he must rule from a place of steadfastness. He must rule from a place of knowledge, both of his own dharma and all of the dharmas to be observed and fulfilled by each and every subject within his kingdom. And again, the Mahabharata, the Moksha Parvan, reminds us that where do we find our freedom? Where do we find our moksha? Where do we find that liberation? We find it through honoring the earth. We find that freedom through intimacy with breath and wind. We find our freedom by understanding that space that we inhabit, the space that surrounds us and the space that dwells within us. We find that freedom through the fluidity of water, and we find that freedom through an acknowledgement of the light that illumines all of the elements and all of our senses. From these five great elements, all beings arise, and they return to those elements again and again. Like the waves of the ocean, a body arises, and at the end of the life of that body, the particles go back into earth, the water goes back into water, the lightness in it returns to light, the breath goes back and joins with the wind, and the space of that body, when incinerated, becomes minuscule and small and rejoins with the greatness in anticipation of what will, from the ashes, be renewed. So the yoga of the Mahabharata is a yoga of life and a yoga that recognizes an intimacy with death. It speaks of great triads, this yoga, and puts in the senses and the elements 
and the body parts, puts them in together, sound, hearing, and the ears. That is the great triad born of space. Skin, touch, motion. This is the great triad born of the wind. Form, eye, and digestion, the heat within the body. This is the triad born of fire. Taste, moisture, the tongue. This is the triad born of water. And scent, nose, and the body itself. This is the triad born of the earth. These senses are to be totally understood. And the Mahabharata introduces a great tool that suffuses all that follows in Indian philosophy. And this tool is a way of conceptualizing the world and organizing the world in three great forces known as gunas. Guna doesn't translate very well into English. There's no equivalent even cousin word for guna. But a guna is a quality, a substance. It's the nature of a thing, and it's the specific manifestation of a thing. There are three gunas. One is tamas. Tamas is heaviness, substantiality, particle, particle nature of, of a thing. Tamas is found in the weightiness of earth and in both the heaviness and flow of water. Tamas is found in a mood of rest and heaviness, a little bit of lethargy or even sloth. Tamas in the rhythm of the human day is found and made manifest in the third of the day spent in sleep. Tamas, that downward movement, the gravity that leads to the gravitas and the substance of those people who have a weightiness to them, tamas, essential for human life, the substrate that holds all things, anchoring all things downward to the earth. Above tamas, we find rajas. And with rajas, we have a heat. With rajas, we have a breath. With rajas, we have passion. With rajas, we have activity. And rajas, with the breath, allows all things to move, to manifest, to not only have their substantiality, but also to be infused with movement, to also feel that heat of impetus and desire. It's through rajas 
that tapas is born, that edge that requires looking in the face the difficult, looking in the face the darkness, looking in the face the difficulty, using that edge to ask the all-important questions, using that edge to create the heat, the friction, the friction of the breath of fire that will surface things, to use that heat to probe into those dream realities that speak through nightmare of what must be faced. The challenges, the challenges that bring us into the fullness of our potential. And then the third quality is the quality of sattva, the quality of light, the quality of space, okay, earth and water, tamas, fire and breath, rajas, space, open radiance leading into sattva. Sattva, the closest quality to the pureness of that purusha. Sattva is that domain of wisdom that allows us to make that connection with ultimate meaning. In India, sattva takes physical form in that psychic space of the Himalayas, that zone rising up into the heavens, that zone associated with the meditating Shiva, that zone of elevation that allows us access to our highest self. And as long as we have the body, we have access to that sattva. Wouldn't it be grand if one-third of our day was spent in svadhyaya, in elevated reflection and states of meditation, and that a third of our day involved us in the activities of dharma, in the work in the world that we must do in order to sustain our body and the bodies of others. And a third of our day, acknowledging and surrendering to that darkness and that other type of bliss, the bliss of rest and of sleep. And as we look, as we understand the interaction of these three gunas, we get that perspective, that perspective of the elevated consciousness moving with the breath into that material realm. And when we're in the material realm, keeping in mind the elevated goodness of sattva, and when we're in the goodness of sattva, remembering that we will return, that we will participate, that we will, through the goodness of our desires, make peace, make peace within the world as best we can. And through our yoga, 
to hold back the reins when we need that place of restraint and release the reins when we have a gift that can be brought into the fullness and into the goodness of the manifest realm. The Mahabharata, the great epic telling the story of the warrior Arjuna in conversation with his advisor, the avatara Krishna, communicates forms of yoga that have created a template for understanding the usage of this term throughout Indian history. The events of the Mahabharata may have taken place some 3,000 years ago. The stories have been told for millennia, and the text that we have in written form today called the Mahabharata has probably reached its current shape somewhere during the period between 600 BCE and 600 CE. So scholars have speculated with this wide range of possibility, where do we find these different narratives, these different descriptions of yoga in terms of their emplacement within history? And as with so many things in India, this becomes very difficult to date. The archeology span that has been done for the early civilizations of India, that is the Mohenjo-daro, Harappa, Lothal, other such locations in the Indus Sarasvati cultural area, have a span that is roughly from 3500 BCE to 1500 BCE. But from the period of about 1500 BCE to 200 BCE, which is again um, 1200 years, maybe 1300 years, we simply do not have significant archeological remnants to examine. This is not because India was uh, without culture, but the tokens of culture, that is the signifiers of culture, including the written documents, as well as the structures, were constructed of plant materials, wood and palm leaves, and with time, they all disintegrated. Starting around 300 to 200 BCE, we begin to once again find statuary and stone buildings that can be excavated. And yet, it is a rather rare occasion when we find religious references or yoga references sculpted or chiseled in stone. So consequently, we have this large uh, range of possibility for the composition of both the Upanishads as well as the, um, as the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And given that um, seeming uncertainty, 
what we are left to do, which is an important and valuable undertaking, is to reconstruct our ideas about yoga and other aspects of Indian philosophy through, in a sense, reading between the lines of the text, but also drawing the connections uh, based on analyses of language. Now, the entire Mahabharata is written in a verse form, for the most part, that is characterized by 32 syllables. A line of eight, a line of eight, a line of eight, a line of eight. And this particular verse form, which is a combination, it's sort of like a crossover between a sentence and a paragraph, often will include nuggets of, of wisdom and insight that can really help us understand the cultural practices and sort of also the psychological states of people that were engaged with repeating this narrative, as well as reading their own um, desires and wishes into the narrative. Recall that every text is written by an author for an audience, and these two maintain what we might call a symbiotic relationship. So the author of this text known as the Bhagavad Gita was narrating uh, a dialogue between a warrior called Arjuna, who was in a state of great distress, and his preceptor, as mentioned earlier, Lord Krishna. And the intended audience would be the audience living in India during those times, an audience for whom yoga was an option, but an option that may require various levels of interpretation and would, by nature, provide different avenues of yoga that would be suitable for people of different disposition. It's actually a very skillful work of um, 18 chapters. Some of the chapters will include more than 70 verses. Some of the chapters only a little over 30 verses. And as I describe the narrative arc of the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, it must be kept in mind that this is emplaced within a much larger war narrative that uh, is a little bit about yoga, but mainly about the drama, the pathos of the human condition writ large. So that larger frame story of the Mahabharata tells of a conflict, tells of a war between two sets of cousins. Arjuna, the middle of five brothers in conflict with 100 cousins on the other side of the family. Arjuna is said to have been the son of the Vedic god Indra. As such, he is a very powerful warrior who had fallen um, into schism with his cousins over a whole variety of issues 
grounded pretty much in jealousy and greed. The five brothers had absented themselves from their original place of, of upbringing that had been in the company of the hundred cousins. And the hundred cousins who had laid claim to a large kingdom were afraid that the five cousin brothers who had moved away would seek to retake a kingdom that disputedly was their, their own. So the brothers, the five, had been for 13 months in exile, uh, and in their return had been invited to dialogue by Lord Krishna with their hundred cousins led by Dhritarashtra, um, or rather the hundred sons of Dhritarashtra led by Duryodhana, and Duryodhana refused to negotiate any settlement and insisted that it be a battle to the death. Arjuna, placed in the middle of the battlefield, on the verge of initiating the charge against the armies that had been arrayed by his hundred cousins and their allies, and marshalling his own allies as well as his own brothers right there on the battlefield, collapsed. And the very first chapter of the 18 chapters of the Bhagavad Gita is about the yoga of Arjuna's despair. Despair is a critical part of the yoga path. Despair, dissatisfaction, an encounter with darkness prompts a person to pose the questions for which yoga provides the answers. And in this rather remarkable scene, depicted in so many paintings and sculptures in the centuries that precede us, we can see in his chariot, again, the symbolic chariot that signifies self-control and power. And in that opening scene of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is just slumped in his chariot and has declared to his charioteer, who is Lord Krishna, I cannot go on. I am disgusted with the prospect of war. These are people, regardless of how much they have wronged us, nonetheless remain our family. And if we kill them, we run the risk of causing all of society to collapse, perhaps it's better for me to just let them slay me than to do this heinous deed. And as he collapses in a heap, quivering on the floor of the chariot, Krishna, his cousin, challenges Arjuna to arise. And he reminds Arjuna that his dharma, his duty as a prince, 
his duty as a kshatriya, as a warrior, is to do what must be done and reminds him that the way to do things, he does not, this is a very interesting uh, literary device within the Bhagavad Gita, he does not give him rationale reminding him of all of the reasons why this war must be fought, but what he does instead is tell him about modalities of yoga through which he can recover his resolve and enter into the needful act from a yogic perspective. The very first yoga that he reminds him about is the yoga of jnana or jnana, the yoga of knowledge. Knowledge is a word, cousin word, cognate with the English word know. It is also related to the word gnosis and it means knowledge. It means having the right insight about the state of the world and one's place within the world to do what must be done. This definitive yoga has really very little to do with what we later consider to be classical yoga, the eight limbs of Patanjali, but in a fundamental way, invites Arjuna to re-inhabit his body with full knowledge of the duty that he must perform and from a place of insight that no longer feels oppressed by the onerous nature of the task in front of him. So what happens in this reminder is that Lord Krishna brings forth beautiful, beautiful languaging of yoga that states as had earlier been proclaimed in the Svetashvatar Upanishad and the Maitri Upanishad that the true self can never be slain, that the soul can never be touched, that winds cannot dry it, fire cannot heat it, waters cannot moisten it, and that the true being behind all of the layers of identity, behind all of these family attachments, behind the emotions of dread that Arjuna is experiencing, that the true self can never be touched. Krishna invokes the Upanishadic phrase that reminds us that anything that you may think to be the case, this is not who you are. The Upanishads say, neti, neti. And he instructs him that through remembering that whatever object of attachment that one may have, 
it will fall away. By remembering that circumstances change, that his focus, his mind state, will shift away from the difficult pieces of those particular relationships and memories and fully into the present moment of doing what the world knows must be done. However, along the way, beautiful verses are shared that underscore the need to remember, and this is is a beautiful, beautiful insight, that all things have a beginning, all things have a middle, and all things come to an end, what occasion is there for lament? Another phrasing is that lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, the embodied one, the Atman, takes on new bodies like a living human being puts on a different set of clothes from day to day. And like that, the soul can truly never be killed. And one must always keep in focus that the soul is eternal. It cannot be touched, it cannot be harmed. And this knowledge yoga, historically, drawing from the Upanishads and reinforced through this dramatic teaching given by Krishna to Arjuna becomes a a lamp for many who may in fact develop mantras based on the Bhagavad Gita that this too will pass, that this too will fade away. Key to this is seeing the world in terms of constellations of the gunas and recognizing that the gunas are constantly in a state of flux, and that the witness, the higher self, remains always aloof and untouched by those changes. The second yoga taught in the third and fourth and fifth chapters is the yoga of karma yoga. And in this yoga, the pronouncement is put out that people must do what they know they must do without being attached to the fruits of action. This yoga advises an individual to become near ahamkara, to become free near of ahamkara, of ego, and that merely do the act to be done for the sake of doing the act. Don't worry what people will think about you. Don't worry about how you will be viewed in the eyes of others, but just merely undertake every action in a spirit of sacrifice, because sacrifice is the nature of the creation of the world, the maintenance of the world, and ultimately every activity 
becomes swallowed into the larger sacrifice that is inevitably part of the ebb and flow of life, the rising and falling, things moving into manifestation, dissolving, yet waiting to reemerge. Let it be. Do not remain attached. The sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita introduces a way of yoga that others have called Raja Yoga. It reminds the person reading the text that that person is not unlike Arjuna and that each and every person has as birthright this self, this inner controller, this grand surveyor, the knower of the field, and by lifting oneself up by one's own efforts, that one can go to that place of stability, that place of steadfastness that is yoga. And the text says one should lift up the self by the self. One should not degrade the self. The self alone can be friend to the self, and the self alone can be enemy of the self. So we have a profound psychological insight. And although the coaching is being given to a kshatriya, to one who owns the field, he and his brothers are staking claim on their kingdom. So also the message is communicated, a message communicated as well by Gandhi, that we all must rise to the occasion of what he calls Swaraj, what we can translate as self-governance, and governance as with the yoga person holding the reins of the horse and controlling the outflow of the senses, so also this is the royal yoga. This is the kingly, the raja aspect of what we can get from this text and what Arjuna receives through this instruction from Lord Krishna. Another very interesting aspect of this text is that it gives explicit instructions in regard to how to practice. And it says, establishing a firm place for oneself, taking a steady seat in a place not too high, not too low, covered with a cloth and with kusha grass, you direct your mind on a single object. Control thought, control the senses, and with yoga, Yoke yourself for the sake of self-purification. It says, holding the body, the head and the neck, erect, motionless, and steady, gazing at the tip of the nose. And this has been a point of controversy with subsequent commentators. Is the tip of the nose here, so you focus your eyes here? Or is the tip of the nose here, which is the point of the third eye, either place would work. 
But what you do in this is you hold your gaze. In later yoga texts, this is called tradakam, and it plays a vital role in allowing the senses and the intention to be gathered. It describes how best to breathe, how best to eat. It says the true yogi either eats, neither eats too little nor too much, does not sleep too much nor sleep too little. Moderate in food and in sleep, all actions being disciplined, that yoga person destroys and overcomes sorrow. And through this process, one is able to become like a flame in a windless place, unruffled, not going hither and yon, content in the self, and through that meditative introspection, being able to elevate that sense of self, to be able to provide for oneself that sense of uplift. The mind becomes undismayed. The mind steadily comes to rest, and in that place comes to the understanding of the self and approaches highest happiness. So very direct instruction on breathing, focusing the mind, settling the mind, and internal uplift. Now, that's a very, um, for most Americans, most modern people, uh, a very good pep talk in this self-help sort of way. And added into this, is relationality. And recall that this pep talk is being given to Arjuna by his chosen charioteer, who is also his cousin, who is also a close friend, who also happens to be, hitherto unknown to Arjuna, an avatara, a manifestation of Lord Vishnu. And in this remarkable moment, and we're building toward an epiphany moment, we begin to find subtle clues given by Krishna to Arjuna that there's more behind this friendship, more to this friendship than meets the eye. And in fact, starting in chapter 7 and continuing in chapters 8, 9, 10, and into 11, Krishna slowly reveals his status as inseparable from the warp and the woof, the fabric, that beautiful textile that is the universe. And point by point says, wherever there is something delicious to be tasted. Wherever there is auspicious fragrance, wherever there is beautiful form to be regarded, 
wherever the caress of the wind brings comfort to the skin, wherever melodious music contacts and connects with the ears, that in all of those places of beauty, there am I, Lord Krishna, to be found. And slowly Krishna reveals the Brahman-like nature of the world in its specificity. In prior descriptions of the ultimate, it remains without possible articulation, the unknown knower, the unseen seer. But in this sequence that becomes the stuff of bhakti yoga, Krishna says, you know, when you're feeling the best of the best, you know when that radiant moonlight stirs something in your soul. You know when the dawn brings you delight with the challenges of a new day. Know that I, your cousin, here in the chariot with you, I am in each of those moments. And slowly, with elegant, beautiful, beautiful language, a shift takes place. And Arjuna falls in love. Bhakti, enjoyment, rejoicing, that elevated sense that we get when we're with the beloved, or even when the beloved is not with us and we yearn for the beloved, it brings out this yearning, this tapas, this burning within our better self that signals that yes, we can go beyond ourselves, that we would literally lay down our lives for the sake of that other, for the sake of the beloved. And with tremendous emotion, Arjuna listens to Krishna and then begs Krishna. He says to Krishna, I know you hold a power so much greater Please let me see your universal form. And in chapter 11, the chapter of Epiphany, Arjuna is granted that request. And he sees not only the beauty, but he sees the terror that is the universe. He sees not only the creation and the efflorescence that had been granted, but he sees the destruction. He sees by looking into the mouth of his friend all of 
the soldiers being smashed and eaten, eviscerated, dismembered, dissolved by time and by the inevitability of war. Krishna suddenly has a thousand heads. Krishna, as he gazes on his countenance, shines with a brilliance greater than a thousand suns rising off the horizon. And it's more than Arjuna can bear. And he finally apologizes and says, I had no idea the extent of your glory and your power. Please let me see once more your two-armed form. And Krishna becomes Krishna. Arjuna falls at his feet and asks forgiveness. Krishna pardons Arjuna and then embarks upon the final discourse. Now, very interestingly, Bhakti Yoga brings a person outside of himself or herself, brings a person through that love and devotion into a space unspeakable and a space that changes everything. Everything has been stripped away, and now Krishna has the task of reconstructing the world through a yoga that will enable Arjuna to lift up and carry as his companion, jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge, to lift up and carry karma yoga, the yoga that says, perform your actions without attachment to the fruits, to lift up and carry and embody and literally sit within raja yoga, having the bodily strength to remain forever in touch with the breath, and to learn the lessons of bhakti yoga, that the highest is when we completely forget ourselves and give ourselves utterly over to the service of the beloved. All four yogas come together. In chapter 12, Krishna states, there is the field, the kshetra, the realm of prakriti, the realm of manifestation, the realm of the senses, the realm of the objects of sense, the realm of the mind, the realm of ego, the realm of the emotions. Know and understand every aspect of that field. And recall, we are literally talking about a battlefield. So he's saying, yes, know that enemy. Yes, know that ally. But he goes on to state, never forget, never lose sight of the knower of the field, the kshetra jnya, the superintendent 
surveying the situation, inhabit that Purusha. Inhabit that person, your person, separate from all of the activity and become that dispassionate space. And in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, he instructs him precisely on how to utilize the prism of viewing everything through the three gunas in order to retain that place of the higher self. So rather than seeing the specifics of food that is rancid or spoiled as, ooh, that food is unworthy of eating, although that is the case, reframe it. Say, oh, that food manifests tamas. So you're elevating your posture so that you're assessing the situation, but your emotions are not being carried away. Similarly, if food is spicy and energizing, titillating in any way, rather than, oh, I'm going to get as much of that as I possibly can, just name it. That's rajas. And I'll have to be a little bit careful. Okay, I know that tummus food would make me sick. This may overexcite me. And then sattva. Okay, if there's food that's pleasing and sweet and balanced, okay, that's, of course, the better food. But too much of a good thing also can cause an imbalance. So like that example of food, Krishna teaches Arjuna to view all circumstances as combinations and variations of the gunas. People who are vile and commit despicable acts, people that are driven by their passion, pull themselves down, pull others down, see them as suffused with tamas. Don't hate them, but observe them. Don't buy into them, but keep your distance. Similarly, passionate people, people that are very fierce in all of their undertakings, know that's what they do. Perhaps you want to use a little bit of that spice in your own disposition, particularly as will be the case as a warrior, but you need to always keep perspective. And then sattva, is sattva always appropriate? Is it always possible to be sunny and light? For some people, that's the way, but it's not appropriate for every person in every situation in life. So slowly, the world becomes reintegrated. The world becomes reinterpreted. Arjuna regains his regal stature. 
Arjuna once again finds steadfastness. Arjuna once again is able literally to take the reins and controlling the senses from that place of being the knower of the field. He enters the battle willingly and engages this tragic war from a place of yoga. Chami Dharma Sharanam Gachami Sangha Sharanam Gachami. We enter our discussion of Buddhism and Yoga. That invocation states in sequence I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in his teachings, the Dharma. I take refuge in the community of monks, nuns, and lay followers who abide by the teachings of the Buddha. When we talk of mindfulness, which has become so popular in modern day parlance, it's very important to have some understanding of the historical context that gave rise to Buddhism, as well as its relationship with yoga. In the northeast of India, actually in what is today modern Nepal, about 500 years before the Common Era, in a small kingdom called Kapilavastu, a young boy came forth into the world in a nearby town called Lumbini, who was predicted to either conquer and rule the world as a king or to renounce the world and yet become the most renowned of all human beings. He followed that later course and after a life of wandering for six years, consulting with various meditation teachers, and observing and then stepping back from the life of ritual, he, seated under a Bodhi tree in a place called Bodhgaya, the place of his enlightenment, a bit to the south near the Ganges River in India proper, he went through a transformation of self. He entered sequentially through the various wakes of the night, an understanding of all of his past lives, the source of all of his difficulty, and then sat and wandered for 49 days before he found within himself the drive and the urge to share the blessing of his freedom and his knowledge of the path to freedom with others. This path, known as the Eightfold Path, 
begins with a perception of suffering, states that there is a cause of suffering, goes on to say that the quieting so desired by every human being is possible through following this Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path begins with the right view and continues with taking up the good life. And this good life is the same as the good life found in yoga, a commitment to nonviolence, a commitment to truth, a commitment to never stealing, a commitment to sexual propriety, and at slight variance with yoga, a commitment never again to engage in intoxicants. And with this, eventually the Buddha gathered thousands of people who took monastic vows under his guidance. And during the lifetime of his teachings, he reached his awakening at the age of 35. He taught for 45 years in the area of northeastern India and southern Nepal. He passed at the age of 80, and his cousin, Ananda, remembered volumes and volumes of the lectures, the learned discourses presented by the Buddha. His practice of yoga meditation has been summarized in one of those teachings called the Satipatthana. And in the Satipatthana, we're guided through the following process, a process widely practiced throughout, particularly the Theravada world of Southeast Asia, has been retrieved from the forest by such people as Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and so many others who now are teaching this way of mindfulness throughout the globe. And it goes as follows, cleaving closely to the same unfolding of meditation and meditation practice we find in yoga. It begins with intimacy with the body. A body scan whereby the individual bit by bit releases any tension from the arms, from the feet, releases any tension in the legs, allows the stomach to relax, feels the fullness of breath and allows that equanimity to arise within the body. Important for this first step of mindfulness is observation of the breath. Noting, not stressing or attempting to adjust, but simply noting. Is the breath shallow? Is the breath quick? Or is the breath full? Is the breath calm, long in duration of inhale? Long in duration of exhale? And noting very carefully the pause 
at the top of the breath and at the bottom of the breath. This is the first aspect of mindfulness. And then the second aspect of mindfulness is a check-in, a check-in with feelings, with Vedana. And this check-in with the feelings allows space for the myriad thoughts that constantly swirl and present themselves. And those thoughts have an emotional effect on the body. Thoughts prompt emotions of regret, emotions of elation, emotions of disgust, emotions of attraction, but rather than obsessing over each and every thought in the correlate emotion, and rather than just focusing on the emotion and worrying about the thought that will generate from that emotion, what the Buddha taught as his second instruction for entering effective meditation is to just simply note, is this a pleasant thought? an emotion? Is this an unpleasant thought, an emotion? Is this neutral? And through this practice, through training in a little bit of distancing, the mind can reach a place of stabilization. In this place of stabilization can be an understanding that our mind takes two forms. We have an ordinary mind obsessing over our next meal, what people think of us, how do our clothes look, is it going to be hot or cold outside? Okay, a necessary mind, but an ordinary mind. And then we have the capacity for what the Buddha called the higher mind. And with this higher mind, we're able to use our discernment and use our ethical resolve to create a world of awakening. 550 people during the lifetime of the Buddha achieved this state called bodhi. And each and every one of those people proclaimed, Naham, Nasmi, Name. I am not who I've always thought I am. I am not responsible for all of the doings that I perform within the world. And regardless of what may be around me, I do not possess any single thing. No subject, no doer, no thing to be owned. 550 people severed the bonds of karma, 
And each of them automatically, spontaneously moved into a life of blessed Dharma. And Dharma in Buddhism, a little bit different from its usage in Hinduism, Dharma speaks to a philosophy that sees rather than a self, sees all phenomena, including this thing that we provisionally call self, is a clustering of different factors. Factors of form, factors of feeling, We've already checked in on both form, the bodily form, and feeling. Factors of cognition, acknowledging that the senses of the mind go out and establish a reality of perception and thinking. And then it becomes slightly more subtle. The fourth factor of reality to be investigated is called samskara or vasana. The habit patterns, the conditionings gathered from life to life, from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, to understand and reflect on those psychological states given by our own education, given by our home life, given by sources that for most people, remain unknown from past lives, but to be able to understand and bring into awareness those narratives and allow them to settle, to play themselves out, to lose their sting. And then the fifth aspect that the Buddha taught was that there will be a moment a fleeting moment of pure awareness. And by reflecting on those teachings and by examining all experience minutely and by being always mindful to abide within that code of Buddhist ethics, it is said that every liberated being will spontaneously become a friendly person. That that person will manifest compassion for other people. That when someone experiences goodness and strong accomplishment, there will be sympathetic joy. And that person will move with equanimity through the world. Maitri or Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeksha or Upeka. Friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Regardless of what one smells or tastes or even thinks, seven factors will be like a garland protecting that enlightened person. There will always be at the ready 
a moment of mindfulness. There will always be the possibility of conducting investigation. Why do I do what I do? And how can I allow for the difficulty in some other person by understanding their particular narrative or even imagining what causes that person to do what that person does? And with steady practice in this arises virya, arises an energy, a zest for all that needs to be done, combined with joy, priti, combined with this uh, abiding happiness, as well as the fifth factor of enlightenment, which is tranquility. Upeksha or equanimity translates in contentment, in a place of balance. And with this place of tranquility arises concentration, one-pointedness of mind, and then we return again to this notion of equanimity, of being at ease with whatever, whatever happens. Now the Buddha, in his 45 years as an active teacher, laid the foundation for this practice, disseminated among thousands and thousands of people within India. Following his death, his disciples brought the teachings all the way as west as Persia, down into Sri Lanka, both overland and by sea into what is now Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. And then some hundred, hundreds of years later, about 500 years later, Buddhism reinvented itself in a new form called the Mahayana. And this Mahayana form that developed that primary meditation technique into what is called in China, Chan, and what is called Zen in Japan. And starting at around the year 100 of the Common Era, both via the Silk Route through the Gobi Desert and via the trade routes landed in Vietnam, in China, from where it spread into Korea and Japan. And this efflorescence of Buddhism captured the imagination of great translators like Kumarajiva, who dedicated decades to taking this Pali literature and the Sanskrit literature and translating it into classical Chinese. And then some five, six hundred years after that, the Tibetans in Central Asia discovered Buddhism and arranged for a similar translation of these materials into the Tibetan language. At the core, the ethics, and the meditation, they both share in common a yoga that we know well, 
a yoga that focuses on the relaxation and the counting and the mindfulness of breath, a yoga that asks us always to tune into our emotions and ask the deeper questions. Why do I do what I do? And a yoga that, for its performance, requires the capacity to sit as the Buddha sat, to sit in full lotus in Padmasana, a requirement to do the hard work of finding out who am I? Is there an I? Why do I do what I do? How can I, like the Buddha, like the Bodhisattvas, live a life grounded in sympathetic joy, in compassion, in equanimity, and in loving kindness. Sharanam Gachami, Dharma Sharanam Gachami, Sangha Sharanam Gachami. Much of what we can know about Buddhism, we know through stories of the Sangha, through stories of the community. So many narratives can be found. And one of the narratives that connects with yoga practice and also speaks to the humanity of the lifetime and the teachings of the Buddha is the story of Pukasati. And the Buddha, early in his career, as a young man in his 30s, wandered from town to town, gathering, preaching, announcing, counseling, fundraising. And at one point, he was staying in a house of a merchant. The Buddha frequently was in conversation with kings and merchants, as well as everyday people. And the merchant had said, okay, you can you know, stay here for a little bit, but stay in this, this dwelling that is in the back of, of my property here. And he was very quietly and rather anonymously taking care of his meditation and, and thinking about his next moving about. And there, unbeknownst to him, a young man called Pukasati. And I love this name Pukasati because it means a being, a sattva, a, a sat, a person, Puka, who is well-cooked, who is ready, who is himself purified. And he had been traveling, and he was a young man who had gone hither and yon, had met some Buddhists and learned a little bit of Buddhist meditation, 
had learned a little bit of breathing. And he knocked on the door of the merchant and said, I'm a fellow traveler in the ways of life. Please, can you give me shelter just for tonight? And this word shelter, shala, is a little bit like charanam. You go and ask for protection. You go and ask for shelter when you need it. And the merchant said, very well, you can stay toward the back of my property. There's a small shed. Settle in for the night, but don't worry. Someone's already sitting there, but I think you'll get along okay. So Pukasati made his way to the back of the property and knocked on the door. The door was opened. He entered. He didn't know that this was the Buddha, but he identified himself as a seeker of truth and asked his companion, would it be okay with you if I were to meditate before going to sleep? And the Buddha said, very well, perhaps we can meditate together. And they sat and they assumed Padmasana. They went into their breath. And they meditated. Not beginning with a meditation on joy or equanimity or peace, but they began a meditation with object. What in yoga and in Buddhism is called samprajñata or savitarka. And this savitarka practice that evening was fivefold. And it began with a meditation upon the earth. And as they sat on the packed dirt floor of that shed, they gazed upon the earth. The male name for the earth is Buya. The female name for the earth is Budevi. And they touched the earth and they regarded the earth. They took in the fragrance of the shed, which then, likely as now, had been freshened and cleansed with cow dung, provided stable, firm support for their sitting and their meditation, and after reflecting upon the earth for some time, the signal was given by the Buddha that now let's turn our attention, let's turn our focus to water. And as they sat, as described in the Datu Vibhanga, they began to reflect and even share a little bit about the gift of water. The merchant likely had left a pitcher for drinking 
and perhaps a pail for bathing. And they began to feel and reflect upon the gift of perspiration, which cleanses the body, the gift of saliva, which allows food to be brought into the body, and perhaps they even reflected, and perhaps, as guys do, they stumbled out sometime during the night and relieved themselves, urinating, allowing, again, that flow of purification that comes as water exits the body. And they perhaps, as part of their bodily check-in, felt and experienced the pulsation of the flow of blood within the body, honoring and accepting, but also critiquing the wateriness of the body. And the Buddha was always quick to point out that water carries impurities. Pus can build up in the body. We sweat to eliminate that impurity. We urinate, again, because the body carries this stuff that is not always most auspicious or even something that we would cherish. We urinate to purge. And then they kindled as the light of day faded. They kindled a lamp. They kindled a deepa. And their third focus of meditation was fire, agni, tejas. And the Buddha reminded Pukasati, the heat in the body allows digestion, but the stuff that goes on in the body can be quite repulsive. If you ever vomit and you see what's in your stomach, that digestive fire gone wrong, the bile and the stench and, and all of that combination of heat, food, water, liquid, okay, there's something life-giving about it, but there's also something that causes us perhaps even to recoil, maintain equanimity, do not become attached to food in the digestive process, but observe, observe how all of this unfolds. And focus, focus on that flame. Allow that flame to bring your mind to a place of stability. And then the next phase of their meditation was to gaze out of the aperture of the shed and to see, even in the moonlit night, the gentle swaying of the trees and to feel the movement of breath, of wind within the bodies. The inhale, the holding, the exhale, and the holding of the exhale. And to allow that gentleness of the rhythm of the breath, bring them into the fifth space of meditation, the space of quiet, 
the space of equanimity. That equanimity led to what might be called yoga nidra, a gentle evening of reflective, deep, meditative sleep. And when they arose the next morning, it dawned on Pukasati that he was in the presence of greatness, that he had, in fact, received direct personal instruction from the awakened one. And he bowed to the feet of the Buddha and said, please forgive me for any untoward familiarity. I had no notion that you are the awakened one. And the Buddha simply smiled. And Pukasati continued and said, I so much would love to take vows to become a monk under your tutelage and to join the blessed community of the Sangha. And the Buddha agreed and said, Pukasati, such a lovely name. Yes, I will initiate you into the Buddhist community as a monk. Please go forth, find someone willing to give you the yellow robe, someone willing to give you the begging bowl. And when you have those items, we will perform the initiation ceremony. And with great joy, Pukasati left the compound of the merchant, went out into the streets of Rajagurha, seeking someone to gift him with robe and begging bowl. But there was a great commotion. A cow had become quite agitated, had been loosed in the town square, and it headed directly for Pukasati, and it gored Pukasati, who died right there on the spot, on the morning, when he sought to take initiation from the Buddha. There was great sadness in the town, and the Buddha's followers, his close associates, said, oh, that Pukasati, he must have had terrible karma to have been gored and killed by a cow. And the Buddha said, quite the reverse. I sat the evening with Pukasati, and through this elemental meditation, through Datu Vibhanga, Pukasati ascended. Pukasati became purified of all of his karmas. Pukasati was no longer Pukasati. He reached that proclamation of Naham, Nasmi, Name. He saw that his ego is not 
his true self. He saw that what he does is not who he is. He abandoned all attachment. And even though he was not able to put on the garb of the monk, his state of mind had reached total surrender. Pukasati became one of the early 550 arhats who achieved the state of nirvana. Now, sometime later, the members of Buddha's estranged family rejoined him. After the death of his own father, Shudodana, his son, Rahula, and his stepmother, and his wife, and the other members of the court came to the Buddha and asked, please welcome us into the Sangha. And in a very historical moment, he initiated his own son, Rahula, into the monastic community. And after some protest, he initiated his former stepmother, his former wife, and other women of the court into the Sangha, establishing an order of nuns. And as he taught and gave direct instruction to his own son, Rahula, he taught Rahula a slightly revised version of the Datu Vibhanga. In a text called the Maha Rahula Uvada, which means the direct instruction to the great Rahula, he said, meditate upon the earth, as he had instructed Pukasati, and emulate the earth. And he said, the earth takes all forms of abuse. The earth can be spat upon, but the earth receives that insult and that impurity without complaint. The earth can become vitiated with all manner of pollution, but the earth absorbs that pollution and purifies that pollution, become like the earth, regardless of what befalls you, endure it without complaint. Observe the river, observe the river with its flowing waters, its waters that come from the melt of the Himalayas and comes from the blessed monsoon rain, and it flows and it moves, and people throw all manner of things into the river, excrement, urine, trees fall into the river, dead bodies are cast into the river, and the river happily and with joy carries all of those impurities away, brings them to the ocean, brings them to a place where they rejoin and dissolve into that purifier of all that can be. 
be like the river, be like the ocean. And they turned their attention to fire. And the Buddha said to Rahula, the fire incinerates all. It takes the wood. It takes the offerings made by those sacrificial Brahmins. It takes the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And it purifies all things, converting them into ash and into soot that rises into the atmosphere. It takes even the dead body and allows its remaining essence to go forward into the heavens. He says, Rahula, be like the fire, steady, a purifier of all. Rahula, be like the wind, follow your breath to join with the places near and far, be like the breath and the wind without complaint. And then the final teaching from the Buddha to his son Rahula is create the space of freedom in everything that you do. Cultivate Maitri, Metta, sympathetic joy and friendliness. Cultivate compassion for all who suffer. Cultivate a sense of rejoicing and sympathetic joy for those who succeed. And cultivate an attitude of equanimity, an attitude of even-mindedness, even in the company of those who offer dispute. Walk with this enlightened life, Rahula, and you too can become free. You too can achieve nirvana. You too, through this practice, can become an arhat. With this blessing, the Buddha gave to his son a teaching for the lifetime. Om Buddha Sharanam Gachami Dharma Sharanam Gachami Sangha Sharanam Gachami Buddhism thrived in India for 1,500 years. And along the way, many people explored Buddhism from all walks of life. Buddhism welcomed people into the fold from all of the varieties of caste and birth and jati and varna. And many Brahmins 
became quite intrigued. Brahmins who, from birth, were educated in the Vedas, who philosophically had learned all of the six darshanas, Brahmins who could memorize and recite and perform ritual. And just as the Buddha himself had become suspicious about the efficacy of ritual, some Brahmins decided that rather than making their living by constructing elaborate havan and inviting people to make offerings while the Brahmins chant, or rather than giving advice on law, or rather than practicing Ayurveda medicine, some Brahmins decided that they wanted to pursue what had been described in the Upanishads and live the life of a renouncer, live the life of meditation. And some of these Brahmins became Buddhist monks. Some of them became Jain monks. Some of them entered the order eventually established by Shankaracharya, became sannyasis. But one Brahmin in particular, a gentleman called Buddha Gosha, committed his life to the path of the Buddha and wrote a remarkable number of texts, including the Vasudhimaga. And this text called the Vasudhimaga, which means the path, the maga or marga of Vasudhi of purification, lays out building on Buddhist practice a step-by-step -step approach, in fact, a 40-fold approach about how to meditate, what to meditate upon, and how to engage that yogic practice of Savitarka, Nirvitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara, to deliver one to the place of eventually Nirbija, the surrender of all of the seeds of karma, all of the samskaras, all of the abiding vasanas, and enter that state of equipoise and freedom. And in the Visuddhimagga, we see at the beginning of this meditation process, a description of what, are, of what are called the 10 kasanas. And the 10 kasanas build on the Datu Vibhanga, build on what we also see in the Upanishads and in Sankhya, build on starting with the earth, acknowledging the earth, threading thoughts upon the earth with this instruction. Go, find a clay plate about eight inches in diameter and take that plate and go into the field and gather from that field a clump of earth and place it upon that plate and then find a protected area, perhaps a shed or a small hut, and place that plate 
some three feet in front of you and then direct your gaze as in yogic tradicum upon that gathering of earth and then let your thoughts enter the earth. Name the earth, call it soil, call it dirt, call it prithivi, and allow it to bring you on a journey. Think about fields that you, you have seen, think about the food that grows up from the earth, think about the majestic trees, Think about all of the items that are made of earth and fix your gaze, fix your thoughts for a long period of time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, perhaps an hour. Think upon earth, celebrate earth. And in yoga practice, I know I had been invited to do that process for 20 minutes every morning and 20 minutes every night for a full month, Prithivi Dharana. And then Buddhaghosa in the Vasudhimaga says, go, get a clear vessel and fill that clear vessel with water and fix your gaze upon water and speak Water, speak liquid, think about ice, think about steam, think about water, feel the water in your body, fix your gaze, take your thoughts on the journey of water. And again, it could be for a month, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. And then Buddhaghosa says, kindle a deepa. Kindle a flame. Fix your gaze on the light. Fix your gaze upon Agni. Fix your gaze and your thoughts upon the digestive process. Feel the temperature. Are you hot? Are you cold? Feel and celebrate the power of fire. Again, perhaps 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night for a month the fire kasana, and then next, the air. Gaze out the window. Look at the tops of the trees as they move forward and backward. Feel the quickening of breath. Feel the quieting of breath. Focus on vayu. Focus on prana. 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, another month. And then Buddhaghosa invites the meditator to notice the color blue, to create a disc of blue color, and to let the gaze focus on that color blue, and then notice all through the day the blue cushion, the blue flower, the blue indigo-dyed garment, the blue house or structure, the blue wall, the blue couch, to see and celebrate the color blue. And then to move after that practice into a celebration of all 
hues of the color yellow. The yellow sun, the golden fields, the yellow wall, the yellow textile, to do sustained attention to that color, giving honor to yellow. And then after that practice, to move into noticing and celebrating the color red. The red stoplight in modern days, the red clock when you wake up in the morning, the red rose offering its magnificent fragrance, the red bottle brush tree here in Southern California, now just passing its peak bloom, the red wall, the red barn. Notice red, discipline yourself, perhaps for as long as a month, of focusing on that color red. And then white. Look at the white wall, look at the white lights, look at the white in your garments. Celebrate the purity symbolized by white. And then after perhaps a month of white, 10 months have gone by, or we're nearing the 10 month mark, that will be the eighth month. In the ninth month, to always, if it's there, and it won't be there every day, but always seek out the sunbeam. Go to a place and notice how that sunbeam moves through the course of a day. Watch how from that sunbeam we can see particles of dust illuminate it, captured by the light of the sun. And think about the gift of shadow in relationship to the fullness of the light of the sun. And the emptiness during the time of the new moon and in the dark of night when the moon is either half or full or even crescent, how the rays of that light from the reflections of the moon can bring us joy and shift the color and shift the perspective, the beam of light from the sun or the moon. And then the final month, the 10th month, is to occupy space, to prepare the mind to invite in all that can be gathered within space and elevating through this prepared mind meditation on teachings given by the Buddha, some of them very edifying and delightful, and some of them very difficult evocative of the dukkha, the suffering that is the beginning of the spiritual path. And just as in those 10 months, there have been 10 objects of salubrious meditation, so also the Buddha teaches again and again throughout his yoga, a reflection on foulness. In Mexican culture, we're invited, as with the teachings of Carlos Castaneda, to meet death 
face on, to keep death as an advisor. One of the great Buddhist teachings, anitya, impermanence, requires us to remember that everything that is will eventually disappear, and that disappearance will be ugly, it will be foul. Meditate on the corpse. Meditate upon the bloating of the corpse. Meditate on the livid fragrance that arises from the corpse. Seek out roadkill. Perhaps visit the morgue or the mortuary and notice the festering that occurs with the death of a bird, with the death of a cat or a dog hit by a car. See that bacteria stirring it up and look carefully at that place where the roadkill has been cut and maimed. And look carefully at where that dead body has been gnawed, where it's been scattered, where it's been hacked. Note the bleeding. Note how the maggots are beginning to give birth to worms that will digest that flesh. And then reflect on that bare skeleton when it has been gnawed all the way down. The body has been gnawed all the way down to the bone, exposing the bone. In one strangely auspicious year, I was gifted with three occasions to reflect on death. Driving through Joshua Tree in the middle of the night, a coyote came, presented itself into my headlights, and with great agony, I realized that even if I were to sacrifice my own life and drive off the road, still, there was not enough time. And my car took down that coyote, and I entered simultaneously into a reflection on death, a reflection on grief, felt the heaviness of having taken the life of a beautiful, beautiful animal, and went to that place of the reflection on the foulness that arises in a moment of the taking of life. That same year, in a vehicle driven by someone else a little bit too fast. We took down, at risk to our own lives, the life of a cow. And I saw that cow rise up behind us and fall on its back and quiver as, it, as its life came to an end and experienced that grief. And then up in the mountains of Santa Monica, 
On two occasions, I encountered a dead deer, one trapped and asphyxiated, and the other having been taken down by a mountain lion. And when the mountain lion did its job, just as Buddha had counseled, when it took down the life of the deer, it scattered its parts hither and yon. We found a shoulder here, a foot over there, and then it chewed it, gnawed it all the way down to the bone. And we sat with that rib cage as a meditation on the frailty, the evanescent presence of life. And over time, the words of the Buddha and of Buddhaghosa spoke directly, reflect on death, death, the ultimate fate of all creatures. Keep this in mind and allow that death to become part of your toolbox for a life of yoga, a toolbox that in Buddhism includes taking shelter in the Buddha, taking shelter in his teachings, taking shelter with the community of like-minded people, taking shelter with the peace deities, like the many images of the goddess Tara, the image of Kuan Yin that brings solace in healing. Remember death, allow death to be an advisor, and then always be mindful of the body, be mindful of the breath, and bring yourself always through these reflections into a place of peace. According to Buddhaghosa, building on the meditations of the Buddha, we can enter the four immaterial states. We can enter into that space that is boundless. We can shape our conscious awareness so that it has no constriction. We can move into what the Buddhists call shunyata, a state of nothingness. And we can reside in that edge in our meditation, in our yoga, where there's neither perception of a particular nor a non-perception. We can simply be with that one perception using our capacity to define, to revisit at the right moment the presence of earth, the presence of water, the presence of fire, the presence of air, and bring ourselves as did the Buddha and the 550 arhats and so many of the thousands of bodhisattvas since into a place 
of spontaneous loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and an abiding practice of equanimity. Haryom Buddha Sharanam Kachami. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the history of yoga. Look for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.